Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, minimally invasive surgery, otherwise known as laparoscopy, has become a popular treatment option for many South Africans. The latest development is minimally invasive procedures involves the use of sophisticated technology that is revolutionizing the way doctors operate on people. Well, just imagine being able to operate on a person with high definition, three-dimensional images that restore your natural vision and provide greater clarity to the extent that you can literally see every single nerve and organ, as well as what's behind it. But it sounds a little bit like science fiction, doesn't it? Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Dr. Francois Skitter. He's an experienced lapar- laparoscopic surgeon who specializes in endoscopic surgery of the stomach and the esophagus. Dr. Skitter, good evening. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you very much, Colin. Uh, uh, I'm sorry if I sound a little bit closed uh, up or so. Uh, I've got a little bit of a cold. Oh, I had that last week, so I fully understand yes, where you're so going, and I'm still not over it. So, yes, I know what you're going through. So if I do break up in the coughing fit, you know, just please don't add to I fully understand. Okay. But, but not for coughing medicine, though, because I've tried everything. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I saw a picture of this and of, of what it looks like, and I was absolutely blown away. It was, It literally is like something out of science fiction. Yes, it is. Uh, it, 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 I don't know how long time we've got, you know, but if I can just give you a, a quick breakdown mm. of uh, what really happened in 1989 was the first uh, person, uh, Professor Jacques Perezon from France, who performed the first laparoscopic colostectomy ever. And since then, everything has been revolutionized. You know. He's now an old man. I've met him now at the recent Congress in Paris. Uh, I've met him several times before, and, uh, but uh, what a pioneer in surgery. Since then, uh, we've performed the first systems available. Um, interesting enough, it was also from Olympus, uh, where the system, the 3D system comes from, uh, was introduced in 1992, and I performed my first uh, gallbladder operation in 1992 with that specific system. Gosh, that's long ago already. That's 22 years ago, yes. That's amazing. Uh, the, the cameras that we used in those days were actually a, a long, long camera, which is a lens, a com- complex lens system, of about 40, 40 to 45 centimeters, and did add the camera at the back. So a couple of years ago, uh, some of our surgeon friends came together, and we looked at the old videos, and we was horrified what we saw, which we thought in 1992 was actually fantastic. Uh, uh, image material was actually not. Since then, the camera system has progressed over the last uh, five to ten years dramatically. Uh, with the introduction of the chip camera, which is a one and a two chip camera, which was introduced right at the tip of the lens. Now, the lens goes into the abdominal cavity or any cavity, for, for that matter, uh, in which a surgeon operates. It can be the chest or a knee or an elbow um, or, or the shoulder or the abdomen or anywhere where there's a cavity. And now the latest development is a 3D camera system. Now, the Olympus system that's currently in use, of what we're using here, is, is the top of the range. And it's actually a fusion with advanced technology, and it becomes all the other limitations of conventional 3D systems. I, I can just explain to you uh, how it really developed. The uh, developers, they were busy developing an, a 3D system in Japan, and they saw the, the movie Avatar, and mm. they actually realized the amazing quality of what the producers actually created with that video, with that movie. So they went over to America and they actually contracted uh, the developers to help them design a system. And this is the result what we've got now after several years. 
Because looking at the picture, it actually it reminds me of going off to see a 3D movie. And I believe you actually wear 3D glasses. Is that yes. correct? While you're operating? That is correct. I can just explain to you. I think it's a fairly complex system to understand. But um, just to explain it, in, uh, explain it in, in, in layman's terms, the human eye of two, two eyes that is located slightly apart. So each eye sees a different uh, view or a scene. This is then processed by the brain, and that turns it into a three-dimensional view. Now, the same way that the 3D glasses do the same, exactly the same as what the brain does, because at the tip of the camera uh, are actually two little cameras, uh, which is a couple of millimeters apart. And they are very high-quality uh, image sensors, uh, and they provide a left and a right picture. So if you close your left eye, you, you see only one view, uh, which is a little bit of a blurred view. So with, you, with the lenses then, acts then um, as, as the brain, and it gives you two, two, two pictures that gives you this very high-definition 3D images. The thing as well about this particular kind of surgery is that it, it has a lot of benefits, not just for you as the, as the surgeon, but for us as the patient as well. I mean, it's, it's a, it increases our safety, the patient's safety, the recovery time is shortened, yes. the length of the hospital stay, the, which makes obviously the whole thing a lot more cost efficient as well. So there's a lot of benefits on both sides. Yes. Uh, let, me, let me just uh, tell you about a couple of things about which is the time saving. Um, and I hope our viewers will understand that you, we, we work through little trocars, which we call it. It's, it's, we make four or five little holes about a centimeter wide in the abdominal cavity, and through there um, goes what we call a trocar. It's just a, basically a tube system with a valve uh, so that the CO2 that we inflate the abdominal cavity doesn't escape. Um, the normal 2D camera systems, the lens is cold. It's it's It's... Um, it's stainless steel. It's a cold stainless steel that you introduce into the abdominal cavity, which is about 37 degrees, the normal body temperature. So immediately you get fogging. So the lens is a bit foggy. That, that wastes time. So the surgeon now needs to create something to, uh, to warm the lens up. You can either buy a very expensive lens warmer or you can warm it up in water, uh, you know, like in a thermos flask. Um, or you can use warm CO2 to inflate the, uh, the, the, the abdominal cavity. That all takes time. This is no, no skills from the surgeon that we are actually saving time because the tip of this uh, new lens is 39 degrees. So there's absolutely no fogging. You introduce the lens into the abdominal cavity, no fogging at all. Another amazing thing about this system is that it's almost got an indefinite focus. Um, if you look down from the abdominal from the upper abdomen to the lower pelvis, it's about 30 centimeters. That lens is absolutely in focus, and the picture that you see on the screen is 100% clear. And you can move that up to a millimeter away from any internal organ, and you have this absolute um, uh, clear, clear image, which is 100% in focus. The other thing also out of the hands of the surgeon is there's no changing of lenses. When we introduce a camera system into the abdominal cavity, we do it through a, what we call a video port of, uh, with a, a VZ port, which is a clear lens system. Uh, that, and this is a zero-degree lens. You can't uh, go into with a 45-angled lens, which gives you a better perception inside. So you have to change lenses then. So the surgeon has to use two lenses. It takes time to, to, to change lenses from a zero-degree again to a 45 or a 30-degree lens. With this system... The tip of the camera can turn 100 degrees in 
four directions. So you go in with a zero degree lens and you can turn it to a 90 degree, degree or a 100 degree lens inside. So there's also the time saving effect uh, of that. Uh, that is without any skill of the surgeon. And you can just imagine if we uh, work in the three-dimensional, uh, which we live in a three-dimensional uh, world, uh, we, up to now, and the, and the system only became available towards the end of last year, uh, as it's freely available, we had to work on a flat screen with a two-dimensional, with no depth perception. And certain surgeons are uh, very difficult in adapting from the three-dimensional world onto the two-dimensional flat screen um, which the 3D gives us a major advantage. A, a very good friend of mine, Professor Yun Sun from the Guildford University in the UK, he's got an unpublished series where they did a randomized clinical trial on gallbladder surgeries. So they gave um, uh, 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 experienced surgeons and non-experienced surgeons the opportunity, and they performed 100 cases each. And the saving per case was about seven minutes for, for one procedure. And uh, theatre time is quite expensive, so uh, there's quite a, quite a saving in just by saving the, the by using the the 3D system. And because theatre time is charged by the minutes, so that's correct. You know, seven minutes is a lot. But you know, back a number of years ago, we were also terribly excited about laparoscopic surgery in general because it was cutting down on the scarring and all that. Oh, yeah, the yeah. blood loss. We thought that was amazing. But I mean, now that's almost like old hat. Now this sounds like the way. I mean, it is. I was reading some information that said at the 14th World Congress of endoscopic surgery held in France recently, they estimated that by 2020, 80% of laparoscopic procedures will be done in 3D. That's correct. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, These systems are all, uh, just like cell phones, you know, the technology changes and you have to keep up with the new technology. The beauty of the Olympus system is that you can have uh, 2D systems, and there are lots of 2D systems in the country, uh, and, and by changing uh, just the software and uh, with many, minimal expenses, a, it, a 3D component can be added to it. Uh, I must say that Netcare is a, a, the, 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 the Netcare and under the uh, 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 Mr. Jock Triplessis, the managing director of the Netcare Hospital Division, I kept him up to date because I was introduced to the system in 2011 with the, when they introduced it to the world uh, by the, um, in this, uh, the, the European Surgical Forum. Uh, I kept him up to date with the, with the development and everything, and he was absolutely uh, absolutely for it. And I had no time to convince him to introduce this into the top, top units of the Netcare hospitals. Now, this one, the first one was installed at Netcare Sunward Park in February. How many of them are in the country at the moment, do you know? Um, we introduced, we decided that we are going to bring in one unit. For, that is my unit at the Sunward Park Hospital. Uh, the Netcare unit there. Uh, I'm, I, I perform bariatric surgery and uh, I'm head of the bariatric unit there. And uh, we have done about uh, between 100 and 200 cases with it now. And, and we decided we're going to bring in one system, sort out all the teething problems, and then we're going to roll out to the other uh, hospitals. Now, I believe there are already, already two other units uh, in uh, Netcare hospitals being installed this coming week. And there's also that uh, one is ordered from an academic institution. Uh, and, and I believe the Netcare is committed to, to roll it out to all the top uh, endoscopic units in the country. It's actually quite amazing how fast technology is moving these days. It, it, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's fast because you mentioned that you'd first worked on one of these back in 2000. When was it? Two, in 2002. 2011. In 2002, didn't you say? Or no, uh, when was it? 
the first in 1992. Yeah, 1992. So, I mean, that was that quite a long time ago, but suddenly it's just, this technology is just moving at an, an, quite an amazing rate. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Uh, I, I must. Uh, it, it, every time I look at that uh, system, uh, it, it is absolutely surrealistic. You know, mm. I, I was doing some suturing work the other day, and I, out of the corner of my eye, I saw my sister uh, making a sudden movement. Uh, my scrub sister, and I looked at her and I said, "What happened?" She said, "I thought you were going to stick that needle in my eye." <laughs> uh, it is just. Uh, it, it's just like it comes just out of the screen. Um, and, the, 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 uh, the beauty of this is it places the surgeon inside the abdominal cavity. And, and with a flexible tip, you can actually look around different organs. You can look over them and see what's on the other side. Um, it, 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 to me, it, uh, I still get goose pimples uh, <laughs> just working with it. You know. It's very exciting in your field at the moment. Gosh. Uh, I'm very excited to live in, in, in this area that uh, through all these technology and, and uh, uh, when I first uh, went over to America to, to learn the new technique of laparoscopic colostectomy, one of the advanced surgeons uh, in the country said to me, I'm wasting my time doing that. But now everybody is doing it, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just acceptable world, worldwide. And there's almost no abdominal surgery that cannot be performed laparoscopically. Uh, and, it's doing, uh, and people are doing it worldwide. I was actually looking at a, a YouTube video this afternoon, actually, about surgery done with one of these machines for somebody with endometriosis, and they were having great success doing that. Absolutely. So, you, you can see that so clearly, mm. and you can just evaporate that endometriosis uh, with the minimal pain and minimal scarring afterwards. Gosh, it's, well, we all, we're living in the right time now with all these amazing new developments. Dr. Skitter, thank you so very much indeed for joining us on the show and just giving us a t- little bit of information, a little bit of taste of where we are going as far as medical innovation is concerned. It sounds like we've got a lot to look forward to still. Thank yes. you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Good night Take to you. Care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Francois Skitter is an experienced lap- laparoscopic surgeon who specializes in endoscopic surgery of the stomach and the esophagus. And we were talking there about the Olympus Articulating HD 3D Laparoscopic Surgical Video System. If you'd like to see what this looks like, and let me tell you, it is quite... When I saw the picture, I was literally blown away. It is quite the most amazing thing to see. Well, I've got this photograph, and if you'd like a copy of this, just drop me a mail to healthmatters at safm.co.za, and I'll send it to you, and you will be as blown away as I was. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, infertility is a big problem the world over, and here in South Africa, one in six couples struggles to conceive. Well, now there's a new potential solution. A sperm-friendly lubricant called Conceive Plus. It's been approved by the FDA in the United States, and it helps with conception, and it's now available here in South Africa. Dr. Simon Mongwatia is head of medical affairs at the health company Lytha Pharma, and is also an expert in infertility. Dr. Mongwatia, good evening. Welcome to the show. Oh. We seem to have lost him. We'll try and get him back on the line. But while we're waiting to get him back on the line, let me just tell you that the AGM of the Western Cape branch of Retina South Africa will be held on Saturday, the 2nd of August, that's this coming Saturday, at the Barnard Fuller Building at the UCT Medical School. The guest speakers are Elspeth Campbell, she's a social worker, and Bev Richardson, an occupational therapist. Both of them are from the Helen Keller Society. There will also be a report back on research activities from the UCT Retinal Outreach Project. Entrance is free, and this event 
event will be of particular interest to anyone suffering from retinal degenerative conditions such as retinitis pigmentosa, stargardt dystrophy and macular degeneration or AMD and other allied conditions. Retina also invites others involved in the eye care profession to come along. For further information, you can contact Val Yordan on 84 491-5807 or Roy Abbott on 072-697-7885 and if you miss any of those numbers just drop me a mail to healthmatters at safm.co.za and I'll pass them on. Right, I think we've got Dr. Mangwache back on the line. Dr. Mangwache, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thanks for having me. Well, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about infertility and also this new sperm-friendly lubricant called Conceive Plus. But before we get to that, let's just talk a little bit about infertility. What exactly is it and how badly does it affect South Africans? I mentioned one in six. Is that That's quite high. It is a fairly uh, prevalent uh, disease, you know, and I say infertility is a disease because, you know, because of this um common prevalence of um, uh, infertility, the World Health Organization, as far back as 2008-2009, decided to officially uh, make infertility a, a, a disease um, because so many people suffer with, um, you know, with this disease. And we do know, like you've just mentioned, that one in six couples will have uh, problems of fertility, of infertility, and we do define it um, officially as those couples that are having regular sexual intercourse that is uh, obviously unprotected for a period of 12 months. And if couples are not able to conceive or fall pregnant within that period, then we um, officially uh, turn them uh, infertile. But I mentioned there's now this new development in possibly helping infertile couples. What exactly is it and how does it work? Yeah, it's um, called uh, Conceive Plus. And what it is actually is it is a fertility lubricant. Now, we know um, through a medical fact that a lot of couples, up to 80% of couples suffer from this vaginal uh, dryness. And a lot of lubricants are designed what we call the pleasure effect to overcome this issue of vaginal uh, dryness. However, when we look at most uh, lubricants at the market presently, we find that if we do research on them, we find that they are not conducive uh, to the process of conceptualization, that they do not allow the uh, stem cells to mix quite well with the lubricants. And in fact, some of the lubricants have been shown to be spermicidal, to harm stem cells themselves. Now, for couples that are looking for this pleasure effect, obviously this is not an issue for them. However, for couples that are looking to fall pregnant, the present lubricants um, are not doing what it is that they want. And therefore, this Conceive Plus was designed specifically to aid, to help couples fall pregnant in that it is designed specifically to uh, interact with the uh, stem cells, with the oocytes, these are what you can call the eggs inside the, the body. And interestingly, uh, Karen, they contain these two elements, which are magnesium and calcium. These are naturally occurring elements. It is the only lubricant that has got these two elements. And these two elements 
aid the sperm cells and the eggs inside the body to remain viable a little bit longer and certainly the sperm cells to be a bit more uh, uh, in terms of motility. So, so it is quite unique in that, in that way. Now, other than using something like this, what else can people struggling with infertility do to help the process of conception? Well, I mean, first of all, this is just a, uh, a product that can aid mm. this um, issue in terms of conception. However, um, it is important that the couples need to uh, consult their own medical doctors, um, you know, to define what the causes of infertility uh, is. We do know that 40% of causes are male. Uh, causes and 40% are female causes. The other 20% are causes that we just do not know what uh, causes uh, this infertility. And once that has been done and the doctor has worked through the couples and have done proper uh, uh, checkup, the, it is important that we also stress lifestyle uh, uh, changes, uh, diet, dietary changes, you know, cutting down on smoking or even stopping it completely and, and, and those kind of uh, lifestyle changes. That is important. I'm glad you mentioned that it was 40% women, 40% men that were having the problem and the other 20% at this point, nobody really knows why, but because it's often seen as purely a female problem. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a sad thing about our society, you know. It has been, uh, you know, that, you know, if couples are in, uh, infertile, uh, that the the blame is uh, uh, put on, on the female. That is not the case. That is not the case at all. We do know from uh, extensive research, like I've said, that it is equally uh, shared between male factors and female factors. And these uh, factors really range from congenital issues where people are born with uh, conditions uh, that prevent them from becoming fertile. You just mentioned one of the condition which is not congenital but is called endometriosis mm. in females. That, for example, could be one of them. So really ranging from what you were born with uh, all the way to hormonal deficiencies and hormonal disturbances uh, to physical barriers uh, due to accidents or due to surgical interventions. And this can happen in equally in both men and women. The thing about infertility, though, is that the these days, I mean, as I was just talking to the doctor previously, there's so much going on and so much that can be done. And there are so many places that people can actually go to for help now. It's not because you think you're infertile that it's a lost cause. No, 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 absolutely not. And, you know, um, it is an emotional, huge emotional uh, trauma for couples that are, go and are going through this uh, particular disease. It is important for them to realize that there is hope. I mean, right from changing your lifestyle, uh, you know, having proper medical workup, using a drug, uh, you know, a drug like Conceive Plus uh, appropriately, and really right to the technologically advanced interventions that infertility specialists have nowadays, there really is hope and a lot can be done for, for these couples. They really should speak up. Uh, there's a lot of help out here. Now, we talked earlier about Conceive Plus. Where I said it was now available in South Africa. Is it freely available? Where can people get hold of this? And also, where can they find out more information about this? Yeah, so this um, product has been approved in, in the U.S. by the Food and Drug Administration, FDA. It is quite a stringent uh, health authority, um, and we have um, made it available in South Africa as well. It should be available in most 
uh, pharmacies uh, throughout the country. However, what we have done is um, on social media platforms, um, on Facebook, and also we have a website that is up and running, Conceive Plus, .co.za um, and more information could certainly be found on those uh, on those platforms. So there is quite a lot of information out there. So uh, would you just put Conceive Plus in the Facebook page thing and, and take you right to the page, would it? It should it should come up, yes. Okay, so it's quite simple to find that. And if you can't, I mean, you can always speak to your pharmacist. As you said, it's available in most pharmacies. So if you can't find anything else, you know, if you can't have access to the internet, go and speak to your local pharmacist. I'm sure they'll be able to help you. Absolutely, and and if if really everything else fails, you know I'm always available at Lita Pharma. We uh, you know distributing uh, this product in South Africa. Um, you know people are free, uh, are free to to give me a call and uh, I can help them out source the product. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much indeed for your time this evening. Karen, thank you very much, and have a good evening. Thanks you too. Good night to you. Bye bye. Dr. Simon Manguache is head of medical affairs at the health company Lytha Pharma, and he's also an expert in infertility. For more information, you can take a look at the website, www.conceiveplus. Now, he said it was .co.za. I seem to think it's .com. So give it a shot on either .com or .co.za, but either one you will find out it is actually .co.za. He was quite right. I was wrong. I've just looked it up on this piece of paper. So conceiveplus.co.za. Well, it's time now to catch up with Manfred Seidler for news from the Commonwealth Games. Manfred, what's happening at the moment? How are we? How did we do the swimming earlier this evening? Oh, very good evening, Karen. Yeah, um, we did okay. Um, Roland Schumann uh, bowing out of a very illustrious career in the men's 50-meter uh, freestyle, finishing sixth. And uh, in a tweet I saw, he said it was very, very disappointed. He was hoping to just grab one last medal. But an, an illustrious career, really, really good career. And, of course, uh, gold, silver, and bronze at the Olympic Games. Can't really ask for more. Bradley Tandy was seventh in that race. And in the 200-meter individual medley, uh, Chad Leclerc getting a bronze medal there. He was leading the first bit of the race, but illness and uh, being a little bit out of shape uh, coming into these uh, Commonwealth Games have cost him, have cost him a, a higher medal. But that's medal number six for him, and he'll be going for medal number seven a little bit later, and that's in the men's 4x100 medley relay race. So it'll be interesting to see if he can get a seventh medal. South Africa now on 25 medals, but have dropped down the rankings from fourth to seventh, as a number of other nations have... Uh, um, gone past with, with medals. Uh, good news though, Wade van Niekerk through to the men's 400 meter final. He uh, finished second in his semi final, and the netball ladies absolutely thumping the Welsh good woman 61 41. The men's hockey 5 1 over the Wells, over over the Welsh as well. So, uh, a pretty good day for Team South Africa. Zark Fisser, Roosevelt Samai also going through to the men's long jump finals. Andre Ulifid and uh, Wendon Nell going through. Andre Ulifid going through to the men's 800 meter semi finals, and Wendon Nell through to the women's 400 meter finals. And for Sider, the Commonwealth Games for SFM Sport. Health Matters with Karen Key. Although rare and genetic diseases and many times the symptoms are uncommon to most doctors, rare diseases as a whole represent a large medical challenge. Combine this with the lack of financial or market incentives to treat or cure rare diseases and you have a serious public health problem. So joining me now is Kelly Duplessis, Chairperson of the Rare Disease Society of South Africa. Kelly, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corin. Thanks for having me. I always find it rather alarming when there's a lack of um, market incentive to treat these diseases. And uh, that's one of the biggest problems I think we have. 
Well, I think um, it's not a lack of market incentive. It's more um, them battling to get their research and development costs back because mm. the, the, the patient pool is so small. So tell us a little bit about rare diseases. What exactly are people listening? They're thinking, what are these rare diseases? So basically, the general uh, statistic is that a rare disease ranges between one in 2,000 people upwards. So there's more common. There's ones that are obviously more common in the population sector, and then there's others that are very, very, very uncommon. But generally, that is what the definition goes by. And rather alarmingly, there's 7,000 different types of rare diseases. I mean, that's an awful lot. Yeah, that's it's, it's a huge amount, and I think that that's what makes diagnosis such a challenge is because many of those conditions are very similar and will be a matter of one or two symptoms differentiating them. So how are these eventually diagnosed? I mean, it must be quite a battle for the parents, especially because most of these are children that are diagnosed with these. Correct. Yeah. 80% of rare conditions affect children in the first five years of life. So these are definitely the more severe. And um, I think that the big problem, I mean, the average diagnosis time is 7.1 years. Wow. So it's a long process and the lack of genetic testing, etc., um, makes it very, very difficult to actually get an accurate diagnosis. And often the time, you know, it's so expensive. So many doctors will say, you know, lack of treatment, there's no need pushing and spending an absolute fortune on getting a diagnostic test done. Um, if the patient has like 80% of the symptoms, they will refer to them as having that type of condition without actually getting confirmatory testing done because it's so exorbitant. So it could, it could potentially be something else? It, yeah, it could. Um, that's it. So I think in terms of the, the treatable conditions, that's why there's such a drive to make sure that patients get diagnosed soon because out of the 7,000 conditions, only 5% have a treatment available. Wow. Because I was actually reading some information that said that 95% of rare diseases have not one single FDA-approved drug treatment. Yeah, not one. Um, and in those patients, you only have supportive care. So having a name, it sounds terrible to say, but having a name for the condition is not going to change what the, the long-term plan will be. Supportive care is all that is available. And uh, that is why in terms of the treatable conditions, there's always such a need to make sure, you know, to rule those out early on. I mean, I got this information, but it, it, the more I read it, the more alarmed I get because they talk about here about during the first 25 years of the Orphan Drug Act, which was passed in 1983, only 326 new drugs were approved by the FDA and brought to market for all rare disease patients combined. That's and correct. And they're targeting the most common ones. Um, so, again, it goes, back to, it goes back to the fact that research companies and pharma companies actually cannot recoup their costs because they're not enough patients. So you spend millions and millions, like billions of rands, developing a drug, and you only have, you know, 100 patients in the world to use it. So where do you come in? Where do, and um, oh, first, before I get to that, the, is this genetic, most of these conditions? Yeah, most of them are. 80% of them are genetic. Um, you do get, like, rare viruses and rare bacterial, um, you know, conditions as well, but most of them are genetic in nature. And I think for us, it's just about being a support to these people and to these patients. Um, many of these families are very isolated from society, not because of the condition itself, but just because of the fact that it is so rare and there's a lack of understanding around them. I mean, just to give you an example, the first time I took my son to a play group and said he has a rare condition, three mothers picked their kids up. <laughs> that just shows the, lack you know, of, the, stigma, <laughs> the stigma around it. And I mean, they're not contagious. Genetic conditions you're born with them. It's not something that you'll catch from somebody else. 
So I think that that's one of the biggest problems, and that's where we try to come in and obviously just make sure that patients have access to treatment where available and that they know that they're not alone and that they can actually meet up with other people who are in similar situations. Now, you are one of those amazing people, which I always think of as my, my own personal hero type people, where you found yourself in a situation, you're dealing with the situation yourself, yet you go out there and try and help other people in the same situation, whereas a lot of other people wouldn't do that. So I take my hat off to you, Kelly, and well done on doing that, that not only are you dealing with the situation, but you are trying to assist other people in the same boat as yourself. Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, you often ask yourself why this sort of situation comes around. And for me, if we can pay it forward in some way, it kind of makes our situation better. You have a better understanding or your heart feels better about it. So at least, you know, we've made differences to other people's lives and it's been the road for them has been a little bit easier, which then kind of makes our pain worth it in the end. Now, part of the Rare Disease Society, you have something called the Patient Sponsorship Program. Tell me about that. So uh, there's many patients, obviously, that don't have access to treatment because it's so costly and it's not available in the state sector. So we obviously do quite a lot of fundraising throughout the year, and uh, we accumulate those funds, and then we use them to get patients on therapy. So if there are patients out there that cannot access treatment, we obviously use those funds to try to get them treatment. Do you also, you also work apparently with the pharmaceutical companies um, to try and get things done through them as well yeah well i mean that they are our i don't want to say you know they are our life source really so um we obviously try and assist pharmaceutical companies in getting what it is that they need to make sure patients have access so um you know in terms of linking the two so often you know it's a matter of um, liaising with medical aids etc to get them to understand the condition and to put their treatment protocols in place it's a matter of getting the pharmacy in touch, the pharmaceutical companies in touch with the patients because they don't necessarily always know where they are. And it's also a matter of speaking to pharmaceutical companies overseas and getting the drugs brought into South Africa where they are, no, where they are not yet available here. So there are some drugs available out there, yeah, but there they're are just some. not. Do you have a problem getting them through the Medicines Control Council here, or how does it work? Jeez. Well, yes, I know, stupid <laughs> question. I was, yeah, thought about that after I said it. Yeah, no, um, that's always a problem. I think the, the MCC is definitely getting better. Um, the application process is is improving, but it is difficult and um, often the cost again, you know. I mean, it's one thing getting it through council, but it's another thing to actually pay for it. And that is where you come in, or partly? Yeah, well, we try. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not a, it's, it's, it's an indefinite pool of finances that would be required to have everybody on treatment. But I think at the moment, because we have such an underdiagnosis problem in South Africa, we are managing to get those that are needing treatment on treatment. So how do you go about raising these funds then? We do, um, we do like 94.7 cycle challenge, the Argus, we do spinathons, we do general fundraising, poiki competitions, cake days, you name it, we do it. Um, I was looking at your website, rarediseases.co.za. I mean, people can contact you via that if they're wanting, first of all, to find out more, to get involved in any way, or to possibly help you with fundraising or make donations, anything. Yeah, absolutely. And also in terms of corporate companies, we always, you know, we always try and align the corporate company to, you know, what their requirements are to what we do. So often we'll um, put fundraising like events together at a specific corporate company to do uh, team building and stuff for them, etc. So we always try to give back to our corporates, realizing that you know everybody's fundraising and every charity is looking for big corporates. But we actually try to focus on the small medium companies because 
we feel that they're often forgotten in the big, you know, the big scheme of fundraising. And we can do quite a lot for them as well. How big is your team, Kelly? Because this sounds like an awful lot of work. Yeah, seven of us at the moment. (laughs) So not a very big team. But um, we're all very, very lucky in that we're very passionate about what we do. So we, you know, I don't think there's any patients that are feeling that they're not getting attended to. And people, I mean, how, from what stage are you helping them? I mean, literally from diagnosis or if people aren't quite sure, can they contact you then and say, yeah. well, look, this, these are the symptoms. I'm not getting any joy here. As you said, the diagnosis can take up to seven years. So, I mean, can you help them possibly point them in the right direction? Yes. Yeah, so we do have a referral network that we refer to in terms of doctors. And obviously, based on symptoms, we'll find out um, where they've been, what's been tested for, what hasn't been tested for, and then obviously refer them to where we think that they might find answers. And um, it is, you know, in terms of accessing everybody, there's, we've got hundreds and hundreds of patients that are still undiagnosed. And some of them may never get a diagnosis, and that's just what's so sad. Now, talk, going back to what you mentioned about taking your son off to playgroup, are you involved in education in any way? Because that strikes me as being possibly one of the big things too. Yeah, we do lots of public awareness, lots. So we, re- we profile rare diseases on our Facebook and social media sites, we do awareness days. We have um, conferences, etc., where we get doctors talking about particular conditions. As you know, for instance, if it's rare disease week, we'll focus on something in that week that we feel really needs to be highlighted. And um, it's a huge after every sort of um, public event that we have or profiling event that we have, we'll always find that we get about 20 patients that come forward for testing afterwards. So it really is helpful in terms of getting the word out there. It's the case of, well, oh, now I maybe know, what, you know where I can go and somebody will understand. Because I think people get to the point where, you know, you start thinking it's you. You know, you go to the doctor with this condition or that symptom and nobody seems to be able to tell you what the matter is. It must be the most frustrating thing in the world. I think, that, well, that was us. I mean, that was me when my son was just born. I did it for 11 months. And I think people started thinking that I was a little bit crazy. And um, it's, it's disheartening when you're in that moment. And it's not that doctors can be blamed because these conditions are so rare that if by chance they would have heard one word about it or read three lines at medical school 15 years ago, you know, so it's not like you can fight with them for it. But I think as a parent... The, the key is to always trust your gut and to trust your instinct. And if something's nagging at you and you're really not comfortable with the situation, keep pursuing it. So how long did it take you to get a diagnosis? 11 months. Oh, so you were, in, in, in inverted commas, almost one of the lucky ones? Almost, yeah. I mean, if, if you can be lucky in this sort of situation. I mean, at least it wasn't seven years. Yeah, exactly. And I think the adults, um, the, the conditions that affect adults, are where it's most difficult because they are generally, um, they manifest a lot slower than they do in infants or in pediatrics. So what happens is it'll be, uh, you know, somebody that just battles to get out of the car and then they're battling to climb upstairs and they, you know, they just seem to be a lot slower than the rest of the population. And those are generally the patients that are starting to manifest with something. And in terms of the work environment, etc., everybody thinks that they're always taking sick leave that, you know, they're just lazy, that they're not really wanting to do anything, when in actual fact they're fighting an internal war that they don't Mm. necessarily understand. Well, on the program a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to a guy called David de Villiers who was diagnosed with myasthenia myasthenia gravis. And he'd had this diagnosis for a couple of years and he was just getting worse and worse and worse and went off back to the hospital and they said, oh, no, actually, no, sorry, you've actually got limb girdle dystrophy, muscular dystrophy or something. And he said, well, what happened to the myasthenia gravis? Oh, no, that was a misdiagnosis. And now he's got something else. So, you know, it's also one of those things where then the symptoms are all so similar that they're just not quite sure what's wrong with you. 
Yeah, and again, that goes back to the genetic testing. Mm. Um, we have limited genetic testing available in South Africa, unfortunately. And as a result, it's not like you just pop over to your nearest lab and, you know, just get tested. Um, everything has to go overseas most of the time, or the very complicated things are always going overseas, and that brings its own cost in terms of traveling and transport, et cetera, et cetera. And you're obviously now paying in euros or pounds. So it's not really accessible to the general population. Well, Kelly, I think you're doing a marvellous job, and long may you do that. And uh, how can people actually help? I'm going to give out the website again, but what are you looking for at the moment? What sort of assistance are you looking for from the public at the moment? Um, if, if, if there's anybody listening that thinks that they've got something that we could use, let us know and we'll find a place to use it. <laughs> well, like what? Because that's I mean, very broad, Kelly. If, yeah, if it's, a, if it's a company that does wax crayons and stuff, we'll find kids that can use that. If it's somebody that does transportation, we're always looking for patients to get to hospitals. If it's a company that manufactures sporting equipment, we can always use it at our other our spinosons, et cetera, or, you know, we can always use anything i promise you we've got a whole range of people looking for a whole range of stuff and i mean something to remember is that many of these families are a single income household because the mom's the primary caregiver so it's only the dad working so they're always in need of of some sort of Of assistance Mm. you know nappies uh, general toiletries furniture there's always something that we can use so as you said pretty much anything Pretty much anything. Pretty much anything. I'll give out the website and Kelly, all the contact details are on there and people can get hold of you via that. Correct. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time this evening and uh, all strengths to you in your endeavours to really get the word out. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks. Much appreciated. Thanks, Kelly. Good night. Bye. Kelly Duplessis is chairperson of the Rare Disease Society of South Africa. And for more information, take a look at rarediseases, plural, .co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. And staying with rare diseases, but focusing on one in particular, Gaucher disease, I'm joined now by Dr. Bertram Henderson. He serves on the Lysosomal Storage Disease Medical Advisory Board. He's also a medical geneticist with the Health Health Professions Council of South Africa, and he's head of the clinical unit in the Department of Clinical Genetics at the Universitas Hospital in Bloemfontein. Dr. Henderson, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you. Well, I've just been chatting with Kelly and rather alarmingly about the 7,000 rare diseases, but we're going to specifically focus on Gaucher disease with you. What exactly is Gaucher disease? Um, Gaucher disease is an inherited disease. And um, what happens is that there's a deficiency in an enzyme which breaks down um, cell membranes at the end of the life of the cells. So at the end of it, when the, when the cells are due to be replaced, the cell membrane will get broken down into its building blocks and recycled. But with Gaucher's disease, there's an uh, enzyme deficiency. So that breakdown process doesn't get completed, and these fragments um, of the cell membrane then just accumulate in various parts of the body. And as this accumulation gets worse, you end up with damage to the liver, damage to the spleen, damage to the brain, um, and uh, uh, long bones, and even sometimes the lungs. And this affects males and females equally? Yes, yes. Okay, and we said it was an inherited genetic disorder, but it's, it's more prevalent from what I've read amongst Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern, Europe, Eastern European descent, now, but not specifically only them. Yeah, yeah that's very true. Um, it's higher incidence there, and then Turkey's also got a little bit of a higher incidence. But 
across the world it affects all population groups, all ethnic groups. So it's not... Um, so, yeah, the, the incidence there is probably about, you know, Ashkenazi Jews double the rest of Europe. Now, I was just talking to Kelly Duplessis, and we were focusing mainly, I think, on children with rare diseases, but something like gouches, I was reading that you can actually develop this condition at any age, and there's even reports of patients first developing symptoms beyond the age of 90, 90, 90. I mean, uh, that's amazing. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, because it's a slow accumulation, and you've got different degrees of involvement and that over there. Um, the symptoms might be so mild that they don't, um, that they're not really worrisome until an advanced age. So how, what are the symptoms? How would pe- how Are people diagnosed relatively easily with something like this? Um, it's actually because, because there's so many different systems that can be affected, it's sometimes very difficult to, to diagnose. What happens um, with the children is that their abdomens are usually protuberant, they struggle to gain weight and to thrive properly, and then when we examine them, we'll find a large liver and a large spleen. They might look um, pale because the abnormal cells have damaged the bone marrow. And um, then other patients present then with um, bone pain, bone damage, fractures to their spine, um, things like that. So... Um, you've got to have a high index of suspicion about Gaucho's disease and um, think about it when you've got unusual symptoms and um, particularly when you've got an enlarged spleen and a large liver. And is this something where the parents would possibly not be showing any signs? They could possibly have a recessive gene? Yes, it, it, is, it is inherited in autosomal recessive pattern, which means both parents have to be carriers of a faulty gene, and then because we've got two copies of all our inherited material, the other gene is healthy and functioning normally, and it masks the abnormal gene, and then the child will inherit um, the gene that's not working properly from one copy from each parent, and will have nothing to mask. Now, for parents that both, both as you said, both of them have to be carrying this recessive gene, yeah. what, what is the percentage if they have children is it will all the children inherit this, or is it sort of quite one in three, or one, one in four? Is it one in four? Okay, so it's it's not a you, and obviously then if you if you're wanting to have children, you would be testing them, you'd be having or testing yourself. What would you well, do? Well, yes, yeah. Once we've been alerted to the presence of the illness in the family, then we go ahead and we can test, and we can do genetic testing, and we can offer the parents antenatal testing or we can offer them testing shortly after birth or whatever their preference will be. And obviously once the children are grown up, it would be recommended that they would be tested as well before they married and had children. Um, the children are, uh, or the siblings of an affected person yes. have basically got a 66% chance of being a carrier themselves as oh, okay. their parents. And so yeah, if they marry another carrier, um, then they're at risk of having children with the disorder as well. Now what about treatment? Um, Treatment is available. Depending on how severe the illness is, we can use what we call chaperone treatment or substrate reduction treatment, which is oral treatment and obviously preferable. For the more severe cases, um, we'll give them a a drip or an infusion every two weeks of an enzyme which gets into the cells, specifically into the lysosomes of the cells, 
and breaks down these products that have accumulated. So there, there, are, no, there are a number of different products that are available. Um, in South Africa, the easiestly accessible one, well, only accessible one at the moment is Terrazyme. So these people will get their drip um, every two weeks and then uh, um, that will clear the accumulation and give them a much better quality of life. Now, when I was chatting with Kelly, that she said that was one of the problems was the fact that there wasn't always medication available for these rare diseases here in South Africa. Now, obviously, for Gauchas, there is um, available medication. Yeah. Is it priced out of, out of the world or is it something that's affordable that medical aids are covering this? Um, no, it, it, it is expensive medicine because um, it, it was years in, in the development and what they do is they actually use genetic techniques to manufacture uh, the product and then they purify it into a form and, and then we'll administer it. So it is, it is quite a, a lengthy process to make sure that it is a safe product. How widespread is something like Gosh's? How prevalent is it? Um, it just uh, it depends, again, on, on the population that you're looking at. For most European populations, on average, one in 40,000 people will be affected. And here in South Africa? Um, we haven't got good figures. We do know that it affects all our population groups. So certainly with the fact that um, our population is descended from Western Europe, in the European population, we'll expect a figure of about 1 in 40,000. It appears to be a little bit um, less common in our black patients, but certainly we've got numerous black patients that are affected. Now, as also as I was chatting with Kelly about rare diseases, their organization, the Gasha and LSD, which is the Lysosomal Storage um, Society, is a local organization that focuses on the needs of people living with Gasha. What exactly are you involved with that as well, with the organization? Um, yes, I, I am um, involved, not in, in depth, but I do know about their activities and I've been involved with some of their fundraising efforts and that to try and create awareness. So there's, I will give out that website as well if people are wanting to find out more about that. But are we looking at any great developments in the treatment or the detection of gashes in the future? Do you see, is there a lot of research going on in this area? Um, what we've uh, um, tried to do with um, LSD advisory board that we've established is to have a forum of collective expertise. So we've got a number of um, senior people across the country with experience in treating the disease, and we'll advise medical aides on the appropriate dosage and amount of treatment um, and complications and follow-up, and also the clinicians will be able to give them a little bit of an experience and guide them through the treatment or through the diagnosis and treatment and help them arrange treatment and that. But um, in the terms of research, we haven't got, I'm not aware of any active research projects um, for Gaucho's disease in South Africa. It's also one of those conditions that if it's you know, diagnosed timelessly and accurately, um, the treatment will actually allow people with Gaucho's to be able to live a, a, a pretty normal life, if you like. Um, you'll, you'll hear the stories of the patients and that, that once they established on the infusions, 
that um, some of them actually go into the hospital, have the needle put in, and have the, the infusion pump connected, and then they go off to work, and they do the work. They do their work, and once the infusion is completed, they disconnect and remove the drip and carry on with their work. Gosh, this is like just having and a normal other, day. Other, yes. Yeah. Other people will then sort of just say, "Okay, Friday afternoon is my treatment day. I'm leaving at three o'clock, and um, go and have it connected up and sit and read while it runs in for the hour, hour and a half, depending on on their dosage." And Gosh. So it's really all about diagnosing accurately and timelessly, which is the big thing. Dr. That's, Henderson? That's the most important yeah. thing, yes, is, is having an, for the clinicians to have an index of suspicion and test. And I always say, because, because we have now got effective treatment that is safe, um, think about it more frequently and test. Dr. Henderson, thank you very much indeed for enlightening us and for joining us on the show this evening. Thank you very much. Brian. Good night to you. Dr. Bertram Henderson serves on the Lysosomal Storage Disease Medical Advisory Board. He's also a medical geneticist with the Health Health Professions Council of South Africa and he's head of the clinical unit in the Department of Clinical Genetics at Universitas Hospital in Bloemfontein. For more information, take a look at Gauchers, S-A, that's G-A-U-C-H-E-R-S-S-A, Gauchers, S-A, dot C-O dot Z-A. The SABC's TV Licenses Department is in the process of upgrading and enhancing its service delivery to the public. This includes a vibrant new customer call center, which will deal with all your inquiries in a professional, efficient, and effective manner. During the transition period, delays might be experienced in attending to queries and calls. Please make use of our TV Licenses website or send an SMS with your ID number to 44210 to receive your balance. Standard SMS rate supply. Thank you for your continued support and understanding in our effort to deliver a better service to our license holders. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel. So join me then. Don't forget there's now a list of available documents for Health Matters. Take a look at Facebook, Health Matters on SAFM, or drop me a mail to healthmatters at safm.co.za. And also that same email address, by the way, if you want a picture from that H3D HD thing, which is absolutely amazing. Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.